Oxford University Press provides a wide range of resources so that you have everything you need to support your teaching of geography. Student books and digital resources on Caboodle blend expertly, helping you to create a coherent curriculum and connect learning in school and at home. Accessible and exciting courses range from Key Stage 3 through to A-Level and include schemes of work and built-in assessment to save you time. Meanwhile, our best-selling revision guides and workbooks support students to consolidate learning throughout the year. Visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash geography to find out more. Hello there and welcome to JogPod. Today I'm really pleased to stand joined by Kate Stockings, who's Head of Geography at the Hampstead School. Uh, alongside this role, she's a keen sharer of ideas on Twitter and more formally through blogging. And you've just reached 10,000 views. So congratulations on that one. And you've helped with the publication of several resources for OUP and other organisations. And hey, I found out this morning, congratulations, a delivery of your National Park City Ranger kit. <laughs> looks very natty. And given everything that's going on in school, I really appreciate you giving up this time. It's just amazing. So thank you very much for joining us today. That's okay. Thank you for having me on. I've listened to several of the um, JogPod podcasts, so it's very exciting to be speaking on one um, and hopefully people will find it useful. As you say, there is a lot going on, so it's quite nice just to take a step back and do some big picture geography stuff that isn't kind of day-to-day -day, uh, management of school life at the moment. So looking forward to it. Good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not in schools at the moment because I don't envy you one little bit. And, and today, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're going to have a bit of fun 40 minutes. Well, it's always fun talking geography. Specifically, really, I want to be talking about what it means to speak like a geographer and and how you particularly, Kate, are building geographical literacy into your classroom and into your department, to be fair. So as we, we really ought to start with what do we mean by geographical literacy? But I, I, I think it's worth splitting that into two as well. Firstly, because what we mean by literacy is contested. There are a, a number of definitions. And, and then geographical literacy, again, is something else that uh, has different meanings for different people. So I was going to ask you first, what do you mean by or think of, of as literacy? And then how does that generate itself into geographical literacy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting to consider the starting point for many of us, um, because I started as an NQT in a school that was very um, fixed on its policies and it had a literacy policy and it had a literacy coordinator, but nobody stood up and defined what literacy was or even what we were really aiming for with all these policies. They were just literacy promotion or literacy policies. Um, and it came to me to realise the importance of it when I started looking at the specification of GCSE and realizing that actually if they weren't literate and if they weren't geographically literate we really were going to get nowhere um, but that key point is as you said we've got to define it to know what we're aiming for and know what we're talking about so if we take literacy and strip it back 
to that ability to read, write and speak well. Um, then for me, geographical literacy is about that in our subject specific context. So recognising the nuances of um, being able to speak well in geography, which is very different to being able to speak well in history, uh, which is similar but different to being able to speak well in science. So I think if we if we have a starting point of literacy as the ability to read, write, speak well, then that, that's a great place to start when considering how to achieve it in our subject. I've seen a number of schools that have got literacy policies and they're great. But as you say, they don't mention geography at all. So you can go through speaking and listening and reading and writing well, but there's nothing particularly about the geography. Yeah, and I think that becomes a problem where we know that students have a real problem with compartmentalising their knowledge. Um, and we know, you know, for as long as we've been teaching geography, they don't apply their math skills to geography and science. They tend to compartmentalise their knowledge. And that can exist in literacy as well. If the students see these literacy policies and see them as connected to their ability in English um, and don't realise that they have to use keywords and vocabulary in a subject specific way, then we can create ourselves some problems there as well. Um, so the school I'm at now is a little bit looser in terms of literacy policies. We don't have a coordinator across the whole school. But what that's meant is that for myself as head of department, we've had to, I've had to kind of stop and say, right, what are we doing as a department to build our ability of our geographers to speak well, to read well and to write well and really think about it on a subject specific um, level, which has been really interesting because there is a lot out there. And I think geography is a subject where I mean, every subject would argue it was important to be literate. But actually, if you if you really critically look at what they have to learn in geography, if you cannot understand the subject specific vocabulary and you cannot be literate in that, then you are not going to end up being a successful geographer fundamentally. I read somewhere because I, I ran one or two courses for the GA on literacy um, hundreds of years ago. And one of the one of the questions that I, I came across, not mine, but it was interesting to pose, does, does a lack of language limit our thinking? So does a lack of geographical language lim limit our thinking in geography? Yeah, I think it does, because if we're saying that um, to be a good geographer, you've got to be able to explain the world around you. But if you're doing that from a starting point of, let's say, 50 subject specific terms, you are limited to your ability to explain what's going on. Whereas if you have 200 specific terms and um, subject specific terms in your bank, you are going to be able to more specifically describe what's happening to that river or explain what's happening to that river. So if you consider how a year seven describes a changing river landscape to how a year 13 does, then absolutely, I think we can hinder, hinder our ability to um, be, be a successful geographer by not being fully literate. When I was doing this, I... I... I pinched an idea from uh, Duncan Hawley. Well, actually, he gave it to me, but I'm at the cutting edge of plagiarism, so I, I, I harvest any, any good idea and start using it. But his definition for what when vocabulary becomes geographical was this. Words become geographical when they increase the ability to observe and describe a place or a process affecting a place more accurately, more precisely, and more concisely. And I've stuck with that as my sort of definition. And you just mentioned that there. You can, you can have a definition for a term 
but it means something different, even the same term for a Y8 compared to a Y13 student. Even yeah. if it's just a word like a ret, even if it's just a physical description, your mental understanding of that and its field relations and how it's developed and how it's formed it, it yeah, is improved. And I think, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but another example would be sustainability. Now, you can understand what sustainability means and you can see that through a geographical lens. But if you can combine that one term, sustainability, with other um, ideas from geography, so you can start talking about economic sustainability and social sustainability or environmental sustainability, then this understanding of this one word sustainability is actually broken down into being something much more accurate, much more precise, much more geographical by combining um, different terms. So I think Duncan Hawley's um, definition or idea is a, a really great one. And actually, thinking forward, that's probably something I could take away and use more in some work with the department about actually making it crystal clear. What are we trying to achieve here? When I kind of keep on about key words, what is the actual aim? And I do like that definition as a really good one to use. I, it, it makes me think about this uh, idea of mastery in geography as well. I, I can understand mastery in, in maths. And I can see how once you've understood quadratic equations, you can then use them in a different context and it takes your learning forward. But mastery in, I know I'm being a bit controversial here, but mastery in geography, if you start talking about mastery of something like sustainability, it, you could say, well, we've mastered it in Y8, but it's not the same as the same concept, again, as we said in Y13. So that's difficult. And that's a real hard challenge for, for geographers to understand what we mean by mastery at, at Y8, Y12, Y13. Yeah, and I think we can bring in another idea. You know, I, I don't often quote Ofsted, but I think we can bring in their idea of fluency here as well. Um, with the new educational framework, there was this idea of fluency of knowledge as well as of language um, and this idea that actually if you're mastering something you can call on that knowledge and you can recall it in more of a fluent way then perhaps you can lower down the school and actually if we're thinking about geographical literacy then we can definitely use that idea of fluency here that perhaps a year seven can use the term sustainability in a really specific context and a really specific sentence. But if I have correctly um, embedded geographical literacy across the school, then by the time they finish with me in year nine or year 11 or year 13, wherever it may be, that student will hopefully be able to be a lot more fluent in their understanding of sustainability and their use of it as well. So rather than just using that key word in one context, now um, they are much more literate in terms of using it in a different context and adapting it in a more complex way in order to be a better geographer. So I'm your um, literacy coordinator in school and, uh, and you're trying to get some money out of me. <laughs> Uh, and, and so my question, first of all, would be, so why is geographical literacy important then? Um, I think I would go back to an example. I teach the EdXLB specification. And when that came out in 2016, when that was published with the sample assessment materials, um, or it might have been the first exam season, but one of the first papers we saw, I remember really, really clearly a question that said, how does topography affect economic development? 
and it was four marks and um, the students, it must have been the first exam season actually, because the students came out and they said, Miss, Miss, you never taught me about topography. We didn't have a lesson about topography. And I said, no, we didn't have a lesson about topography. No, because it's not, it's not a big enough uh, thing in the specification to warrant a lesson, but we certainly talked about it. Um, but actually coming away and reflecting on that, if I had not explicitly taught them that keyword, and if I as a teacher have not explicitly engaged with the keywords and the subject specific vocabulary that I need to teach them, then actually the situation now is that I'm hindering their ability to answer those questions and succeed in that exam. Because we had many, many students who just left that blank. Um, and I think that was a really important turning point for me to realize that we were doing okay with keywords and we were doing okay with subject specific language, but it probably wasn't at the fore of what we were doing. And it probably was second to graph reading and numeracy and data skills. Um, and as I say, with the new specification and with the new focus on literacy there, we realized we had to put it at the fore of what we were doing. And it had to be um, center of, of our work from year seven if we were going to get them to succeed at year 11. Because there is absolutely no reason why that question should have thrown up so many students. How does topography affect economic development should not have caused our most able students to hit a block but it did. Um, and that was kind of a turning point for me. So in terms of why it's important, I think it's, it's really important for a number of reasons. We've already said that actually to be a good geographer and to be able to describe a place accurately, to be able to describe a process accurately, you have to be able to speak and to write well. Um, but also for success in our, exam season, in our exam system, rightly or wrongly, you have to be able to do that as well. Um, and then this is just about wider life, I suppose, and kind of when you've left education, being able to articulate the world around you properly, um, more broadly than just exam outcomes. So it's a bit of a journey. That's not something that you came across with your professional development then. This is something that you've worked out through, through practice. Yeah, absolutely. So it's you reflecting on your own your own um, current practice rather than it being something that you've picked up from a course. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I loved my PGCE. I'm sure there was a focus on it. But, um, you know, let's not forget how many plates you're spinning in those early years. And in those first couple of years, when I was trying to just get year 10 in the seat, um, keywords probably wasn't, uh, wasn't a big focus. And that's not, that's not to say that was okay, um, but it's come over time. And it's definitely something that I would now focus on a lot more. Um, and I do talk about it in training to uh, trainee teachers or to early years teachers, that actually, if you can build this into your practice, there is a lot of benefits because students like to experience success as we all do. And so if you've got a difficult class and you can use keyword vocabulary to enable some tricky students to feel successful, that can have a massive impact. Um, and that's been a big thing for me. If I can enable difficult you know, let's take an example, a difficult group of teenage boys to feel successful because they can suddenly speak like a geographer. And instead of saying, uh, miss, people die because they're poor and their country's rubbish. If they can say, miss, life expectancy is low because their income is low and therefore standard of living, etc. If they can do that and they can experience success, then that helps with behavior. It helps with the culture of the class. It helps with the general ethos. Um, and I think that's what I've come to realize as well. 
Yeah, I picked something off one of, I think it was off your blog, actually. Four out of five teachers believe that difficulties with vocabulary lead to lower self-esteem for students. I'm sure I read that on, on your blog. Yeah, and OUP, it was on an OUP report, actually. They published a report fairly recently called Bridging the Word Gap. Um, and it's very, very up to date. It, it draws some research from during COVID and during lockdown. Um, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the report talks about how significant the lockdown has been for the word gap between the most um, advantaged and disadvantaged students. And when I was reading it, it kind of compounded to me everything that we're saying, how important this is, and particularly post-COVID, particularly post-lockdown, where many students have lost um they obviously schools were never shut but we won't get into that argument but they've lost the <laughs> quality let's say let's say they've lost the quality of learning that might have happened um at school it's not a new problem either is it because I, I as i was looking at this i went back to some of my old notes so i think we're talking 20 years ago when robin alexander said the educational consequences of social disadvantage can be compounded by children's difficulties in oral development and communication. There's a general recognition by employers as well as educators of the social and economic importance of the skills of articulate communication in speaking as well as in writing. And then I went to another one. This was from 1993, I think, which talked about a concern of, of lack of vocabulary knowledge. But the documents generally didn't offer any specific guidance that teachers say they need for how to tackle this. So I thought I'd ask you first, how much guidance have you had or has it all come uh, as practical experience? Um, practical experience has certainly been a really important part of the journey. Um, I think the more hours you spend in the classroom and the more exam cohorts you put through, then the more, um, well, not exam cohorts, the more cohorts you teach, the more you are able to reflect on what you've done and reflect on making those improvements. And um, I've been a big advocate of kind of reading over the last couple of years. And I've been reading, I mean, some of the best ones, you know, Margaret Roberts, I'm um, sorry, Margaret Roberts, Geography Through Inquiry, those kind of fantastic books. And a lot of them, um, although they might not specifically have a whole chapter on geographical vocabulary, actually, if you're reading those texts about geography education and geography curriculum, and you have geographical literacy in your mind, you can see how it's a key theme that runs through a lot of um, literature. However, in terms of absolute direct training, no, probably not a lot. Um, and perhaps that's something to consider in the future, whether we whether we need more specific um, training. You know, I, I'd love to have some time, the, the age old time debate, but <laughs> I'd love to have some time with, a, with an English um, subject specialist to say, look, this is how we actually teach students to write. And this is how I've been taught to teach students to write, because I, I haven't ever had that process. Um, and I think it would be incredibly interesting and I think we could we could gain a lot from that um, but you know yeah the age-old problem of time so experience is a good a good substitute but perhaps that's something for um, subject bodies to, sp to consider in the future um, about the availability of training for this. I, th I think so particularly seeing as it does seem a number of times to be raised that it's linked to the ability of pupils to express themselves clearly and to improve their confidence. Um, I, I read a, well, 
it was a it was a PowerPoint actually that I'd been to, but I reread it. It was a, a David Rayner PowerPoint from a, a GTE conference in 2013, and he was doing an analysis of geographical literacy, geographical vocabulary, and it being linked to pupils' lack of confidence in terms of attempting any extended writing or any activities, or joining in classroom discussions because they were worried about their language deficiency. And so in a family that doesn't come across these sorts of words, they're already at a disadvantage. Mm. But it's difficult for us then to decide what is actually unique to geography. How do we decide which are the words that we're going to promote and which are the ones, like you just said there, we, topography, that, it was something that was there or thereabouts, but you didn't actually push. So which, how do you decide? Have you done that with your department? And how do you decide which are going to be the specific vocabulary we're going to focus on? Yeah, as, a, as, as part of kind of this journey, I suppose, um, there's a blog on the AUP um, geography education blog that I wrote a few years ago now, perhaps 2017. Um, and I have considered asking them to delete it because my thinking has changed so much, but I don't want to be that person. I want to be that person that, that keeps blogs up so that I can say, look, this is what I did think, but now my thinking has changed so much. So and in my NQT year, my approach to geographical literacy was literally some posters of banned words because I'd seen it on Twitter and I thought that was a great idea and that would solve the problem. And um, so I laminated some some posters and put up um, the words that they should say instead of others. So saying, you know, don't say people, say population. Don't say uh, money, say income. Now I've progressed a long way since that and we, we now do map out our vocabulary in each topic. But in order to answer your question in terms of what is essential vocabulary, for me, it comes back to what do they need for the building block at that time? And it's different here, it's different to something like science where um, at times in the past, I think teachers have been guilty of teaching a misconception to then unravel it later. That's not what we're saying at all. But what I'm saying is we teach them some words. What do they need at this stage to build the building block? What do they need as the foundation now? And we can build on that later. So it's not that you're purposely missing out words to limit their understanding. It's that you're choosing the vocabulary that they need at that point for that understanding. And then when you come back to things in future, what you're going to build upon. Um, so, for example, when you're teaching climate change, um, I don't think you can get away with teaching it without talking about mitigation and adaptation. They are two words that you can't save for later, because if you do, I would argue you are possibly risking hindering that understanding at that first stage. So when we teach climate change in year seven, we do teach mitigation and adaptation because you can't save those for later. But if you look at something like development, um, do I need to teach them FDI in year seven? I would argue perhaps not. That is an example of something I can save till later because I can teach them income in year seven. I can teach them gross domestic product, but I can save gross national income and FDI until year nine. 
And that for me is sort of this journey we've been on. And, and people will disagree. People will say, well, I think you should do this word in year seven and I'll save this one for year nine. And that's fine. As long as you've thought through that process and as long as you've got a rationale of why you've done it, I think, I think that's absolutely fine. What I don't think you can do is steal someone else's vocab list and say, well, I'm going to do all of these words because so-and-so on Twitter said she teaches these to year seven. Um, and that's part of the danger of the social media model I suppose um but that for me is the key thing as long as you've gone through that thought process of which key terms you're introducing and why that's going to be really powerful so is that done through the department so one person perhaps writes one unit but presents that to the department and says these are the key words I think that this unit is going to cover what do you think Absolutely. And we do it. We do it through the lens of knowledge, actually. Um, obviously, people are very aware of the, the um, movement at the moment towards knowledge rich curriculums and knowledge underpinning uh, everything much more. Um, and we do it through the lens of knowledge. So when somebody tweaks a lesson, say um, a colleague has been tweaking our year seven scheme of learning, should we preserve Antarctica? When that colleague is saying, I want to change this and I'd like to tweak this and I want to do this. We have these conversations through the lens of, well, what is the core knowledge that they're studying in that lesson? And therefore, what are the key vocabulary they're going to come across? Um, and that's a really, a really great way of thinking about it. Um, and that kind of goes wider as well in terms of documentation. I, I don't want people to ever produce something that is a huge workload for them that is going to have minimal impact on the students. So we don't want these huge, great performers and in-depth lesson plans or anything like that. But if you can just show me a keyword list, actually, more often than not, it's going to be very clear to me what knowledge you're covering in that lesson. Because if you can show me how over a nine lesson series, you're covering these different words, then as a subject specialist, I can look at that list and see, yeah, I can see the progression building up here. Um, and that's another thing I've realized that actually keyword vocabulary can be useful for that as well. Accountability, consistency and coherence across the department if we're all aligned to what we're working towards. And you're happy then that as your thinking changes, and as your teaching changes, then possibly the words change too. The importance, uh, the significance of which ones that you're going to teach. Because I think you said it, it's okay if you leave some out. It's where we're going on our journey with our students in our department, rather than trying to pack the whole lot in. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the idea of, you know, a long term plan comes in. I have always worked on a three year long term plan of, of the two departments I've been in. Um, and I'm in my second year of my second department. So I'm in my no, I'm in my third year now of HOD at that department. So this is still, I don't think, this is still not me um, having finished the task because I'm in the third year. Next year, I will hopefully reap the rewards because a whole Key Stage 3 cohort will have gone through Key Stage 3. So we will have seen that year sevens that started when I started there come through to select GCSE Geography and reap the rewards of this focus then. But of course, then I'm going to have to look and say, well, what needs to change? in year seven what do we now know that we cover in year nine that actually we should have built up more strongly in year seven and our vocabulary is going to have to change as a result so perhaps some of those words that I had held back and had saved actually that was the wrong decision and they should have been introduced in year seven um, and other things could be subbed out and changed and I think it's important to kind of mention 
sometimes when I share these lists on Twitter or share some vocabulary work on Twitter, it can look very, very ambitious what we're trying to cover with them. And, you know, I work at an inner city comp in London. Our students are everyone and everyone. Um, and yes, they are ambitious lists. The idea is never going to be that all of year seven know every word by the end of year seven. That's completely unfeasible. It's not going to happen. However, my um, argument and my rationale is that every year seven deserves to be exposed to that language by the end of year seven. And they might not all be able to define all of those words and they might not all be able to use them in a sentence, but they've heard them. They've had the opportunity to become familiar with them. And by the time we revisit that vocabulary in year eight and in year nine, they will become more familiar with it. So I just wanted to kind of mention that before I get loads of apps going. Yeah, but you work at a great school where they're all A-star students. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, we are ambitious in what we do and recognise that. Where do you get your um, your inspiration from? Where do you get the sources for these words? You talked about the exam and thinking, Greggy, that they were limited there because we hadn't covered topography. Do you get them from textbooks? Do you get them from, where, where do they come from? Yeah, a mixture really. Again, part of the journey, um, gosh, it's a, it's a long learning journey, this one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, part of the journey has been realising myself not to fear textbooks. Um, I was definitely, definitely guilty of arriving in teaching um, and getting swept into this idea that we shouldn't use textbooks and we should deliver every lesson from the front and it should come from me because I am a subject specialist. Um, and, you know, in those, in those first two to three years, I didn't really pick up a textbook. Um, I guess naively I thought, I was better. Um, yes, that was mistaken. Actually, now I use textbooks an awful lot because, and I have to say, having worked on them, I realise the time that's put into them and the super high quality products that people like the GA, OUP um, produce. And actually, why, why would you not use them? If someone's taken the time to write this really excellent piece of text that is in line with the reading age for that year, and they've thought about the keywords really critically, and they've done a glossary at the back, um, you know, why reinvent the wheel? So, in answer to your question, yeah, textbooks are a source I've definitely come to use a lot more in year four and year five of my teaching than I did in year one and two and three. And my goodness, I should have done it earlier because my energy levels are, are restored to some extent now that it's not all me at the front. Um, but yeah, textbooks are, are not something to fear. And I know that at times seems like a controversial statement, but it absolutely shouldn't be. Well, I started... <laughs> And my A-level students would have seven, eight different textbooks. So they'd have one on soils and they'd have Ronald Motta said on biogeography. And they were serendipitous learning then because they would pick up words from the textbook that I necessarily identified, but they'd find and use. So I found that really extended their vocabulary. I, I found that really useful. Towards the end, we were using one textbook, David Woff, probably, or one or two of the others of, of that sort. But we, as I, I suppose as, uh, as funding was more limited. But when I first started, we had lots of variety of textbooks. And even at, um, we didn't call it Key Stage 3 in those days, but um, even in the second and third year, they'd have more than one book, one more yeah. than one textbook. 
And I, yeah, I'm a big advocate for them now for a number of different reasons. And I'm sure, you know, someone's going to pop up and say, well, we haven't got the funding. And I completely mm -hmm. understand that. Um, we're very lucky that we do have some key stage three textbooks. Um, but then but then let's be creative. Let's consider other sources. So it's, it's fairly well known that I'm a big advocate of The Economist and um, read it weekly yes. and absolutely love it. And um, the reason I love it is because it is so, it, the clarity of their writing is fantastic they don't shy away from complex language it's an adult an adult publication an adult magazine um but their clarity of writing is such that I feel I can introduce it to a-level students and I can get them to engage with it because even though they might be discussing a big concept and a big idea above what my um, A-level cohort needs to learn actually it the way it's written is really useful so Definitely use The Economist a lot in the classroom and um, use the World Economic Forum, their blogs as well, um, source from Twitter, but their blogs are written in a very similar style. Um, and yes, if you haven't got funding for Key Stage 3 textbooks, it's difficult, but there is, there is ways to be creative and to find those sources. And I think the biggest thing I've learned is when you see something good and when you see something beneficial for literacy in the classroom, take the time to make it into a decent resource that year because you can come back to it year after year after year so if you find something and you think this is a, a piece of language a piece of text that I can really make into something good then spend the time on it keep it um, you know laminate it <laughs> um, keep it and then come back to it year after year after year because as much as anything if you can build a really excellent lesson around a half an hour piece of text that isn't you delivering it at the front that's a very sustainable way of teaching and um, because you are you are increasing their literacy you're gaining their knowledge and you don't have to stand at the front and deliver it sounds great to me hey, it sounds good to me and you've moved me on really nicely to the, the next thing I was going to talk about <laughs> the next link because you you talked about laminating you talked about that was the first strategy really using something like the economist the first of, of many strategies that you use for actually building geographical literacy into the classroom. Um, I've, I've read your phrase, I'm pinching it, lived not laminated, I think is lovely because oh, they, I you can... I can't lay claim to that. I wish I knew what the source <laughs> was. But, um, no, I definitely didn't make it up. I pinched it from somewhere else. Oh, go on then. Oh, that, what a shame. But well, <laughs> not me. It certainly wasn't me. But what a great phrase because I've seen lots of these things where things are just laminated and they use them as placemats. And then it becomes wallpaper. So talk me through some of the strategies that, that you use that are most effective, that, that do that living the language, not laminating the language. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's, there is absolutely a place for displays and a place for laminating and having it on the wall. Absolutely. But I think what I realised is that just doing that was never going to work. I mean, it sounds embarrassing to even say it. Of course, it wasn't going to. Um, but you have to really, really live it. So if you are going to really achieve progress in the way your students are, are writing geographically, you have to embed it into everything you do. And sometimes that's, um, as I say, sometimes that's longer text so sometimes that's basing an entire scheme of work around factfulness in year eight or basing an entire scheme of work around the almighty dollar in year seven and building some longer extracts into lessons or maybe that's something as simple as um here's 
seven keywords on the board. I'd like you to put each of them into a sentence, a geographical sentence based on what we've learnt. Or when I'm doing feedback with students on an essay, the first thing we tend to do now is to circle all the keywords you've used in green. And actually, if there's a big glaring gap in the middle where you haven't circled any keywords in green, that's what you need to work on. Um, and one of my favorite activities, I talk about this all the time, but one of my favorite activities, which actually I developed as a bit of an SOS when I had seven minutes left at the end of the lesson. And again, I always reference seven minutes because 10 minutes is long enough to start another activity. You can get stuck into something for 10 minutes. Five minutes is just about short enough to pack away and kind of drag it out. But if when you look at the clock as an NQT, you've got seven minutes left, um, I don't know, you're in sticky water there because, sticky water, sticky mud, uh, you're in dodgy ground there because that is too long to stall them for. So I developed this tactic as just a bit, as I say, a bit of an SOS where I would write three sentences on the board and I would say to year nine, look, this is how a year seven would speak. A year seven would say, um, People in India are poor because they haven't got much money or something geographically incorrect like that. And then I'd say your job, because you're a fantastic year nine geographer, is to turn that into an exemplary sentence. And they would then eagerly rewrite it using as many keywords as they could to speak like a geographer. And that's the language I'd use. I'd say, prove to me you can speak like a geographer. And that that kind of simple task is, is very self-differentiating, really, because you'd have the, um, the weaker students who would simply circle the bad language and replace it with a keyword. So they'd circle poor and put low income, or they'd circle um, dying young and put low life expectancy. But your higher ability students and those that were really going for it would literally rewrite the whole sentence and would actually end up writing a paragraph um, and say, Miss, look how many keywords I can use. And, and that that is one of the best things I do still to this day. And um, I've changed it a little bit. I tend now to start with a spelling test. So I will test them. I will give them a spelling test on the words that I'm going to use in that activity so that they've got the list spelt correctly as much as anything. Um, so that I then don't get 30 lots of government spelt wrong or environment spelt wrong. Um, but yeah, little things like that. I think for me, the key thing is building it in as much as possible. So really making it part of your language that you use every lesson about the importance of keywords. And as I said earlier, a big thing is, is students experience success through that. Because actually, if a student can feel that they're making these small marginal gains through their language, that can be really powerful um, in terms of them feeling success in geography and, and wanting to get better at it. One of the things the SEM department did for us when I first started teaching, they gave us a, a comprehension exercise. And it was nonsense, gobbledygook. It was a little bit like the Jabberwocky. And we were, us as, as newly qualified teachers, were able to get... 10 out of 10 on the, uh, the comprehension exercise without actually knowing anything at all because it was all nonsense. But we could fit the nonsense into the right place with the question. So when the Jabberwock said what they did and you came out with the right answer, but actually understood nothing. And they said, don't give students a word and the definition because they'll learn the word and the definition together, but they won't actually internalize the word. You've got to think of different strategies for getting them to understand that word. And one of them was give them the word 
ask them to see whether they'd ever seen it before, ask them to write what they thought the definition was, ask them to check that with a much longer process, but asking them to think through what that word meant. And then I've, I've seen lots of different ways since, but what, how do you do that? How do you tackle new terms? Yeah, I don't, I, it's not very often that we would do keywords and definition because I think the problem in geography is, as we said earlier, actually I could give them the definition of income and say, use this instead of money. But actually that's, that's not really appropriate because sometimes I don't want income. Sometimes I want capital, I want revenue, I want income, I want, um, yeah. <laughs> all various forms of money and so how do we do it I think tend to just do it through kind of direct discussion of what the word is and why we're using it in this context and then when we revisit it again and define it in that context again try and draw those links back to hang on you've heard this word before haven't you in a slightly different context but we're coming back to it here and that's where the idea of mapping it out is really helpful because if you've gone through that thought process of seeing when the first time they're going to be introduced to that word is you know when you're coming back to build on an idea and it's not just about being introduced to the word of course as we've said it's about this idea of knowledge if you're if you've mapped out the first time they hear sustainability then you know when you've covered that knowledge about that concept so when you revisit it you can draw those links explicitly um, through through that thought process and having done that so that gives you a sort of departmental consistency then, really. Mm, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a big one for, for teacher autonomy and I, I'm, I'm very careful to balance consistency and autonomy um, the, as best I can. And I think by mapping it out, we've able to achieve that consistency, I hope my colleagues would say, in, in quite a nice way. Because as long as we've discussed the core knowledge in the lesson and the core vocabulary, you are then free to deliver that as you like with your own strategy, your own PowerPoint, your own approach, your own retrieval practice, your own activities. But we've, we know what we're all aiming for. And indeed, if you, if you decide to cover ablation and accumulation in two hours, but someone else does it in one, that's fine. As long as we all know what our common goal is and the knowledge that we're delivering to say year seven in Antarctica. So for me, mapping it out has been really useful. Um, and it's mainly been useful for this, this um, idea that I hold very dear that you've got to balance accountability and, and consistency very carefully. And actually, through doing that, you are able to attain and um, maintain autonomy whilst holding people accountable because there is a shared list of knowledge and vocabulary we're going to cover and achieve consistency. And this helps with your progression then as well, doesn't it? Because you can then, whoever you're identifying this order to, Yes, we're, we're, we're looking at progression here and we return to it here, but at this level and we return to it here at this level, I, I imagine that's how you do that. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, um, edXLB, they study India in a lot of detail in year 10. That's their development case study. Well, we study Brazil in year nine. So in year nine, they do a topic called Is Brazil an Emerging Country? And if you look at the vocabulary that we choose to cover in that topic of Brazil, 
and matched it up with the NXLB spec, you would find many, many similarities. Now, that is not to say that we are teaching the GCSE in year nine. No, don't misunderstand me. And um, that is just to say that we know where students are going to end. We know, sorry, where we want students to end up. So we know what our goal is for progression. We know the language we want them to be fluent in, and therefore we're going to introduce it in year nine. And Yes, it is mapped from the GCSE, but that, the words we do do not limit their geographical knowledge. It doesn't limit their geographical understanding to just the GCSE because we do it through a different lens. We do it through Brazil. So, um, yeah, you have to be careful with that one. But, but I think it does work very well as long as you've given the thought as to why you're doing what you're doing. Do you identify any misconceptions? Have you ever come across that sort of really silly misconception like on a field work you're wandering around looking for a riverbank and they're looking for Barclays and you're looking for a little cliff <laughs> no the one oh, the one that I just I just don't understand is the ozone layer and climate change where does that come from I have I don't mention the ozone layer in lessons really it doesn't come up until you get to the older ones and start talking about um Montreal protocols and things like that but every year a year seven will say miss climate change ozone layer hold and I'm like where does this come from and um, so we definitely do have to unpack it we definitely do have misconceptions that we have to spend time unpacking and um, but again that comes back to this idea of being ambitious from the word go I suppose and not letting something go because you think that um that it's, too, it's going to be too tough. Actually, if you don't teach mitigation and adaptation, to come back to that example in year seven, then by the time you get to year nine, you risk things like um, misconceptions around the plastic problem and climate change. Whereas actually, if you deal with those in year seven and deal with the um, differences between those two global issues of plastic pollution and climate and the links, of course, but the differences, then it does make it a lot easier, I think. Do you get students, is this a strategy you've got where you get students to identify familiar words before they start? Or does that come through the discussion that you're having with the, the students as the lesson progresses? I've done it a couple of times. I did a couple of times. I paused at the start of a year 11 topic and said, um, you know, which of these words are you not familiar with? What do we need to teach? I think now once you've done it a few times, you kind of just know roughly which words there's not a chance anyone will have come across. So, for example, when I teach year seven Antarctica, I know there's not a single person in that room that knows what accumulation and ablation are. I mean, perhaps. No, I don't think I've ever had a student that know where they are, what they are. So now I think I'm much more confident in knowing that. But certainly if, you, if you're an early career teacher or somebody that isn't um, aware of what your cohort might know, then it's certainly worth taking the time to do some activities and do some exploring about the literacy level. Um, I don't know, people might disagree and say, well, you should always take the time to consider what they do know. But actually, would I teach it any differently? Because I, I want to teach it in a certain way to all students so that we deal with any misconceptions anyway. If they tell me they've heard of development, I'm still going to teach it in the same way because I'm going to want to make crystal clear that they are understanding it in the context that I'm speaking mm. in that lesson. So don't tend to now, but perhaps that's something to consider going forward. I think words like ablation, they'll never have heard of. But I, I do remember 
quite early on, when I was talking about settlement, my students imagined wigwams. We're talking late 70s, but they, th- those sorts of words they struggled with. The ones that could be, geographers mean something specific, so market, but um, we have something in our head and they have something entirely different. Those are the ones I think that cause the most problems for some students. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm trying to think of an example. Um, yeah, I suppose so. It comes back to the idea, you know, when you've got 30 students in the class, I suppose I would argue you can't risk not making your um, use of that language explicit. So even if 10 tell you they've heard of it, actually you still need to strip it back and be super explicit about what you're talking about and what you're studying in that lesson. So let's go from, we've got the vocabulary now. We're very clear about that. We're very clear about the progression and about the development of understanding. But now we want to take it to turning those facts that they've learned and that information into some more well-balanced and and persuasive writing. So what strategies do you use now? They've got the vocabulary, but you want them now to understand, and this is part of literacy as well, I suppose, you want them to to be able to write um, a persuasive piece or a piece that's an argument. Yeah, Um, I mean, again, controversial, but I am a fan of the Peel paragraph and I am a fan of giving them a structure and saying, follow this structure for your paragraphs, make your point, give me some evidence and really explain it, really show me that you've been in some geography lessons and then link back to the argument. And that works very well for me. And again, there's been a lot of discussion um, recently and over lockdown when we had time to get into nitty gritty discussions and a lot of discussions that Peel can limit students' ability to express themselves in their writing. Um, I disagree. I think it works incredibly well in my A-level classes where I have students who go on to get A-stars and students who get E's. Actually, Peel enables me to meet the needs of all of those students. Now, if I was in an A-level cohort where they were all going to get A-star and A, perhaps I wouldn't use Peel, of course. Perhaps I would... um, just be able not to use it. But that's not the cohorts that I teach. And therefore, I do need to have a strategy from key stage three right up to A-level that enables me to ensure all students are progressing. And Peel works very well for me, and mainly because once they've made the point and they've used some evidence, that explanation is going to be so different from an A-star student to an E-grade student. And therefore, that structure and that frame works for everyone because they, the A star student doesn't say to me, well, miss, I'm so confined by this structure, I can't explain myself. Of course they can. That nitty gritty bit, um, you know, is a really chunky paragraph. So I, I'm a defender of Peel. Um, I know it's not in vogue at the moment, but I'm, I'm sticking with it. Um, and then we use our structure strips at GCSE. And again, I've had some what would you call it, pushback, I suppose, from people saying, well, how do you move away from a structure strip? And quite simply, you move away by saying to year 11, do you need this or do you not need it anymore? And they turn around and say, no, miss, with all due respect, I don't need your structure strip anymore. They're not quite so polite, but they say, no, I don't need your structure strip. And that's how we move away from it. So they start in year 10 when they first do their first um, assess essays on the Edexlb specification. They start with this little... Um, it's literally a strip in the margin and it has some sentence starters and it says the first side of the argument way up the second side of the argument way up conclusion and they stick it in 
um, they use it, they use the structure, they use the sentence starters. And then normally by about June in year 10, they start to say, no, miss, I'm okay. I don't need one. Obviously some students do. Some students use it right up until the exam. And again, people have said to me, well, isn't that a problem if the week before the exam, they were still using a structure strip? And I would say, well, not if in the exam they can remember the, start, the sentence starter because they've used it so many times since year 10. And again, it comes back to context and it comes back to the context of who you're teaching and, and your cohort. But if you're in a school like I am and um, where you have everybody and anybody, then you have to do what works for you to meet the needs of all students. Well, I'm glad you said that because um, I was thinking a bit that I was a bit like a left behind teacher. Because I, I used card sorts. And I read all this stuff about what how limiting card sorts are. And I used them with the sixth form. I used them for things like evidence and theory, because they could never get the, the evidence and theory for plate tectonics. But I also used them to help them play around with text so that they could structure a 25 marker essay, which was what we had then. They could play around with that without writing the whole thing and then thinking, oh God, that was a nightmare. I'm going to have to start again. And it, it, well, I think it worked. I don't know what you think. I don't know whether I really am a left behind teacher here. Yeah, I was going to say, I could just picture people now, you know, Kate and John stuck in the 90s with card sorts, textbooks and peel paragraphs. Hey, don't um, say the 90s because um, one or two of them out there will start saying 70s, Kate, 70s, not you, me. I wasn't in the education system before the 90s. So I have to, that's, that's my point of reference. Um yeah, no, card sorts, you know, absolutely, definitely a place for them. It comes back, as I keep saying, to if, if the teacher and the curriculum maker, curriculum designer, whatever you want to call um, ourselves, if the curriculum maker has given the thought as to the value of that card sort and why they are sorting that material out, then absolutely they're of value. Um, a card sort every other lesson is probably not the best use of time. But again, to reference another one of the blogs on the OUP um, education blog, one of the blogs I get asked for the link for a lot is a piece I wrote a couple of years ago that I haven't changed my thinking on. So that's a that's a good thing and is one activity I use with the sixth form perhaps once every half term and I absolutely love it it takes a bit of preparation because what I do is I print off the keywords on blue paper I print off the evaluative language on green paper and I print off the um a star a keywords on pink paper and I cut it up for them and they've got all these different color pieces of paper and then they get an a3 piece of paper and they have to plan their essay and the reason I do this is because I find when I first set those evaluation essays there is glaring gaps of no evaluation where they just present me with knowledge. So through doing this card sort and through doing this colored paper activity, what I can say to them is show me your plan for paragraph one and paragraph two. And they'll do this nice plan and they'll put their keywords in. And I'll say, well, where's the green paper or whatever color I've used for evaluation language? There's no evaluation here. You've got no colored words. And they'll say, oh, no, miss, let me bring a however 
or a in the long term over into that paragraph. And so what we do is we map it all out. And basically the idea is that in every paragraph, they should have two bits of blue paper, two bits of green paper and two bits of pink paper. And as I say, it takes some admin, it, it does take some prep, but I've definitely reaped the rewards from it. And um, where later students will say to me, oh yes, I can remember the green words um, and they can build in that evaluation. So that's an example of a code, uh, card sort with the older ones but certainly with the younger ones as long as you've thought about what you want to achieve with it and as long as you haven't just randomly shoved words in text boxes to cut up as long as there is the thinking behind it um, absolutely of value definitely I think that's the key really is the thinking that goes behind it rather than yeah thinking through what you're using why using it have you just seen on social media that people are doing different things and therefore you're going to let go of what really worked for you? Because if it worked for you and it worked for you to deliver excellent geography and you were helping to deliver fantastic geographers, then keep using it. And, you know, we come back to this textbook idea. If you recognise that a textbook published by OUP or whatever publisher um, has been written really well and has gone through a really rigorous QA process to check the vocabulary, to check the reading age, to check the link between different topics. There is absolutely nothing wrong with using that. Um, and that's, that's something I try and, yeah, mention, I suppose, and keep in people's minds that um, we need to remember because otherwise we just risk going in five-year cycles and changing what's in vogue and changing what everyone's doing and not having the consistency of learning from mistakes. And I want to go back to what you said about the, the colours because that was really interesting. I really like that idea. And it's the start of, of thinking about time, words and visuals together because you're now thinking, have I got that colour in? And I've read a fair bit about using visual imagery as well to support literacy. I just wondered how much you'd thought about the use of visual imagery. Yeah, I have to admit, this is, this is an area that I haven't explored that much, really. Um, and I'm envious of many people that are really getting stuck into this now. I'm seeing a lot of work on... Um, dual coding and graphic organizers of people really taking the time to really critically think about how to visually represent this terminology um as i say it's not something i've really explored properly because i think as with any educational technique if you don't do it properly you risk that idea of i think they call it a um, lethal mutation where you risk the idea of taking an idea that sounds excellent but not doing it properly and I'm afraid I have seen many geographers say on Twitter, oh, I'm dual coding. Are you really? Or have you just put a little photo next to a word? Um, so it's not something we've really done because for me, the risks of doing it badly are more dangerous than the risk of doing uh, The risk of doing it badly is too great, I suppose. Um, and the risk of me just whipping a random icon and putting it next to sustainability is too too high and um, so it's definitely something I want to look into it's something that I need to take the time over and I need to ensure that I've done some reading and some CPD to, to make sure I don't fall uh, fall flat and, and do this idea of lethal mutation where you inherit an idea and don't do it properly but there is some fantastic work going out um, on there with regards to this so so I do urge people to take a look and see if it's something they could explore more yeah, I do take your point about the dual coding. I've seen things where people have just lifted an icon 
and, and then said, well, this is dual coding. And for me, it, well, it's, it's a pretty meaningless thing that's sitting there. If you, if you lift an icon and put that next to the word every time, I'm sorry, you lift an icon and you put the same icon next to the word every time you put social, well, I'm sorry, but what have you achieved above just explaining what social is? They don't need an icon of a person to know what a social impact is. If I tell my year sevens a social impact is anything to do with people and four weeks later embed that knowledge again and four weeks later embed that knowledge again, the icon wasn't going to achieve anything that I couldn't achieve. Um, but if you've thought through it properly and if you've got a really clear rationale and if you share that with students, obviously all of this can be a powerful learning activity. But if you're an NQT sitting there knackered after a five period day with planning to do, and I'm thinking, oh, I've got to put some icons in, that's where we're in, we're in dangerous ground there because actually what is the benefit to the students and what is the benefit to the geography of what you're doing? And I guess a, a key thing, if we had to sum it up, if we had to sum all of it up in one line, would be what is the value to the geography that you're doing? Yeah, I, I was a big learning curve for me very early on with A-Level. There was, a, there was a question. It must have been my second or third year of A-Level teaching, so I'm feeling really good. A question comes up, and it was a glacial question, and we'd done, we'd done Corrie's and Arets. But although I've said we... Um, we had lots of resources in those days. We had only one textbook, so there was one photograph. So they'd seen one photograph from Minaret, and the one in the exam was a different one. But it was absolutely spot on the right question for my students. So I'm cheering. They come out the exam. I say, did you do that question on glacier erosion? What? That one with that fantastic array? What? Oh, was that what that was? Oh, my God. And they didn't recognise it because they, they hadn't seen enough. They hadn't seen enough visual images linked to that keyword to recognise what it was that they were doing. Oh, God, I'm going to have to give them lots more different views of, of landscapes because it's those sorts of landscapes weren't familiar to them, not in a, a mining area in South Yorkshire. Yeah, and obviously, you know, in this day and age, we don't really have any excuse not to expose them to visual imagery because, you know, we may not have colour printing galore, but we've got colour screens galore um, and we can definitely show them those images. So, no, if we're talking about exposure to visual images, there is there is uh, no excuse. I think that's something slightly different to um, what I interpreted your question as, which is... um, a visual reputation, a visual representation of every keyword. They are almost two different things because do you need to visually represent income or employment? Mm, I don't know, we could debate that one. Whereas something like um, a quarry or something like a U-shaped valley does need to be visually represented. And you do need to show them the photos of that in context and in different contexts so that they don't um, panic in the exam. Absolutely. Well, I've got a quote here from Morgan and Lambert. This is 2005, and I've used David Lambert and John Morgan a lot in, in developing my thinking. Our argument is that one of the major problems with the literacy in geography is that it starts from a literacy perspective and that geographers ought to look to an understanding of writing in geography as a subject to develop its perspectives. I think that's what you've taken us through today. I think that's how you've approached all of that. 
I think you've gone from literacy and geography to geographical literacy. And I think that's how you've taken us on this conversation today. I think that's been really useful. I was going to ask you a couple of other things, but I think I probably, I've probably got as far as I can. So you've got to go and make your tea in a minute. Is there anything that I've forgotten to ask you that you'd like to add in towards the end of this? Um, no, I don't think so. I think well, obviously I could talk about geography all day. Um, but no, I think I think we've covered a lot. I think, you know, if people listening wanted to kind of sum up what we've said in a few points, I think the key thing is embedding geographical literacy throughout and be that five years, be that seven years, be that a three year key stage three. Um, are you thinking about what you're doing as more than just a one lesson delivery? Have you mapped it out? Have you planned it? Have you thought about that progression going on? And if you're listening as a head of department, then I would kind of urge an exploration of literacy as a really good way of getting consistency and coherence in your curriculum. Equally, if you're listening as an NQT, um, vocabulary and geographical literacy is a really great way to move beyond that lesson by lesson planning and start to think about that medium term planning that they bang on about in PGCEs and you think what actually how do I actually do that um, and then if you're listening as kind of a classroom teacher and somebody that wants to take something away to use in the classroom tomorrow then I would say look at your lessons and what can you do can you use mini whiteboards? Can you do some sentences on the board? Can you do a card sort? What can you do in your lessons tomorrow um, that is fairly low workload? So forget the card sort, actually. Um, but maybe mini whiteboards. Low workload, but high impact in terms of this idea of literacy and bettering your, your students' subject-specific vocabulary. And you've got lots of links that we can put into the website so that when they're listening to this and they're thinking, where will I find that then? They can go straight to the website. And yeah, and do get in touch if, if there's anything specific you'd like to ask me. Um, I have got to where I am, I suppose, through the help of other people and people helping me in those early years. So I'm more than happy to discuss with anyone if, if they want to talk about something more specific. And we'll put your Twitter link on there as well, so that you can be inundated with people on Twitter too. That'll be fun. They can see the daily, the daily kind of reflections and watch the journey as it occurs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. Hey, that was been fantastic. Thank you very much for that. I've really enjoyed today. I hope you have. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been, as I say, good to take a step back from covid and everything that that entitles and just talk about big picture kind of the purpose of what we're doing i suppose hi it's mark from the ga membership team this week we have a special offer for you the top spec geography series is designed for post 16 students and provides an easy to follow approach based on the latest research on a wide variety of human and physical geography topics these cutting-edge resources help bridge the gap between A-level and university and are the perfect accompaniment to A-level geography. Titles include Migration and Global Governance and Water and Carbon Cycles and you can now get 15% off any of the six titles available using the code TOPSPEC15 that's all capital letters followed by 1-5 TOPSPEC15 Visit the GA shop on our website to purchase your copy today TOPSPEC15